0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Prep to Pivot Season 2, where we explore different aspects of making pivots in careers with expert guests from academia, industry veterans across banking, retail, hospitality, to diplomats and research faculty from top business schools across the world. Today we have with us expert guest, Professor Edward Rogers, who served as the Chief Knowledge Officer at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland from 2003 until his retirement from government service in 2020. At NASA, he built a set of knowledge management principles that strategically support the agency's missions. Dr. Rogers received a B.S. in Agronomy from The Ohio State University, a Master's in International Business from the University of South Carolina, and a Ph.D. from Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations in Human Resource Management and Organizational Behavior. His work focused on game theory applications and collaboration in high-tech firms. Since 2009, he has been a visiting faculty member at the Indian School of Business, teaching the Managing Complexities elective. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. It's an absolute honor to have you, and I'm sure that our audience will have a lot to take away from uh, our conversation today.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you. So uh, to start off, can we try to understand your career path a little bit better? Can you walk us through what were some of the decisions you made? Uh,
1: so I started in agriculture,
0: okay.
1: uh, studying how to reform agricultural policies around the world. That was my first interest. Uh, <clears throat> we went off and did uh, mission relief work during the war in Lebanon, okay. primarily because I spoke Arabic and we were, in, were interested in helping people. And, you know, like you're young, you want to do something good in life. Yeah. So that was, that was fun. Uh, then I uh, did some consulting work. I got an MBA and did some more consulting work. And then finally I got a PhD and became a professor. Right. And uh, I was a professor for a few years. And I got enticed into a very interesting job at NASA. Which I then occupied for 17 years, and along the way, I've taught part time, as you know, at ISB, right. which I'm continuing to do, even though I've actually retired from NASA now.
0: Okay. So, um, in your journey, what were what was what were some of the most challenging or interesting times that you had, um, or any projects that you did at NASA? Uh,
1: <clears throat> so, NASA's projects are all challenging. I mean, they don't do work that's not challenging, so just for the the record. But some of them were more challenging with respect to what I was doing. The ones that were more challenging, uh, well, let me start with the ones that were easier. Okay. That might be a better way to start. The easier ones are what we might call simple projects. Not that what they're doing is simple, going to Mars or Venus or Earth, or whatever they're doing. But the project is simple in the way it's organized. Okay. Because that was my angle of things. So a project that's done in-house by NASA, by their own people, not a lot of partners, not a lot of collaborators. Right. Those are simple projects. They might be big, but they're simple, simple as far as organization. The complex ones have a lot of partners, a lot of people that you have to integrate, foreign partners and Europeans are adding things, things partnerships with India, like right. the nicer program we're doing now. Yeah, yeah so these are, those make it very difficult and very complicated to keep everything on focus. The technology may not be any harder, but people are doing different parts of it, and it has to fit together. Right. And so it's that integration of things and timing and scheduling and project style and culture style and behavior and management, all those things come into play and make it quite complex. When they and so those were the challenging ones. They weren't always necessarily foreign partners. You might okay. think, oh, I'm talking only about foreign partners. Some of the hardest ones were partners within the U.S. Okay, between different government agencies.
0: Right, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so you mentioned that you started initially as a professor. And then you moved to NASA, and then you got back into uh, academia. So uh, could you explain some of the reasons why you made those pivots in your journey?
1: So I was doing consulting, and I started well. Go I got invited, actually, by a person that I was working with in Cincinnati, a very smart professor, who was very intrigued that I was so interested in what he was doing. He really hit it off. So he personally invited me to go get a PhD at Cornell with him, Okay. which worked worked out. And then after that, I became a professor, because when you get a PhD, you become a professor, right? That's what right. you do. So I got a job teaching, and it was in Alabama. And I was teaching for a few years. And uh, this is actually what happened. I saw an ad in the academic newspaper, which goes to all academic universities, so it's a na- national paper. Right. And there was an advertisement placed in there by NASA looking for someone who had a PhD in knowledge management. Okay. Now, knowledge management in 19 about 2000, 2001, was not even a recognized field in university. Okay. Now, I had pushed to get my PhD in that area, but I couldn't call it that.
0: Oh, okay. So I just did
1: a ma- PhD in management, you know, with OB and all these kind of t- right. t- typical fields. Yep. But really what I was doing was knowledge management. Okay. That's what I was interested in, how people learn, how they share, how companies do that, all that kind of stuff. Right. So I said to myself, there can't be three people in the United States who have a PhD in knowledge management mm-hmm. at this moment. Okay. I don't think NASA knew that, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but that's what they, their need was. You know, like good government people, they put their specifications very specific, Right. PhD from a top tier school in knowledge management. I said, there's probably three people in the whole United States who fit this criteria. Right. So I took it home and I showed it to my wife and I said, look at this. I know we've only been here a couple of years. We're settling in, nice professor life, you know, nice area, right. but this job is actually written for me.
0: Right.
1: I mean, there are no, I don't know how many people actually could even apply for it. So I applied uh, and it uh, <clears throat> took some months. Uh, the government works slow, as you know, so yeah. months months went by and I called him up and I said, uh, are you still looking for this job or not? <laughs> right. it, really, I called them up and asked them, you know, which is kind of bold, right? And I like the job. Right. And I said, uh, and if you are, you need to move quickly because uh, academics sign contracts for the following year, Absolutely. months in advance, because the university needs to plan their courses and their faculty, you know, they don't wait till like, September."
0: Right.
1: <laughs> By March, April, everybody's contracted for the next year. And this was in like March. So I call them up and uh, like a week later, I got a call for an interview. Okay. <laughs> and so they got my message and they and they, they, interviewed, they interviewed other people. I know they interviewed three or four. And, uh, and it just was a fit. It was, uh, they didn't have any idea what I was going to do. Okay. But that's why they hired me. And that's why they specified. We don't know what to do. We, and so they hire experts in their fields, like NASA does, right? Experts right. in aeronautics, and experts in mm-hmm. mechanicals, all that, engineers. We don't know anything about this field, but we need some help. So we want an expert who figures will figure it out what to do with us. All right. So that was why the challenge was almost irresistible. I mean, if you spent your time doing a PhD and you learned all this stuff and someone says, can you come do this on us right. at NASA? Like, okay.
0: Everything <laughs> just fits. The it way. just fit. Perfect. So, given that you had 17 years of career at NASA, um, what made you want to come back to teaching?
1: So, I actually got involved in teaching at ISB in about 2007, 8, 9, around that time frame. So, I'd been at NASA about four or five years. Okay. And so, I went to my boss and I said, "Uh, if you want me to stay here, (laughs) uh, you know, I need to be able to know that I have an alternative. Right. Because there's no career for an ex-CKO from NASA. There's no, no... I mean, I'm already taught. They don't go up from that. It's a, it's a position that, you know, it's not an end position, a terminal position, if you will, especially right. at the senior level I was at. So I said, my only alternative is to go back to academia as a professor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If I do that, if I want to do that, I need to be be functional. I right. need to still be teaching, doing some things, you know, that show that I could go be an academic. Absolutely. If I don't do anything for 10 years, I'm toast. So right. English expression meaning I'm finished, right? Absolutely. That career is finished. So he agreed. So okay. he, he said, we know we want you to stay here, and uh, I understand what you're saying, and that's not uncommon for our scientists. A lot of our scientists who are astrophysicists or right. chemists, whatever, they need to stay active in their field with academia, and we allow that there. There's a lot of back and forth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sure. So, it just so happened around that time in 2007, I came to India for an International Space Conference in Hyderabad. So the Global International Space Conference mm-hmm. was hosted in Hyderabad okay. in 2007. Yeah. And I came for NASA. I was making a speech. And uh, while I was here, I, I got invited I came over to ISB campus and met some people. Some, okay. I don't know if I met the dean or who I met, three or four top of people. Mm-hmm. And they invited me to teach a course at ISB.
0: Okay, so it's like things just aligned themselves. It came along,
1: yes, yeah, so it came along. So I said, that's wonderful. And uh, they said, uh, what are you going to teach? And I said, well, I, I don't have a course. I haven't been teaching for a few years. I've taught different things, you know, but I don't have a course I'm teaching at such and such a college. I can right. just bring my course back. Yeah. You know, because I haven't taught for a while. So they said, uh, well, why don't you make up an elective because we need a few more electives. This was early, you know, early years of ISP. And they said, you you seem qualified enough. You're well-recommended. Some colleagues have recommended me. They they check up on that. Okay. Of course, yeah. (laughs) So you can really know what he's doing. And uh, so I said, fine. So I made up a course that I thought would help fill some gaps for MBA students, especially Mm -hmm. at a top tier school where they get all the finance and marketing and strategy they need but they really need some, maybe some, some before they leave, how do we stitch this together to become okay. good managers, and actually um, use most of the stuff we like. So that's what I put together in this course, Managing Complexity.
0: Okay, yeah, so I think uh, a lot of us were very intrigued by the name of that, mm-hmm. like managing complexity. So as you mentioned, that sort of stitches the different programs that we may have studied together. Does that also sort of help fill the gaps when you're trying to be a manager in practice?
1: Uh, it does, so I the things I, The things I teach in the course are things I used, mostly at NASA, where I had the opportunity to apply. I was teaching on the side, and I was working at NASA, so it's a great back and forth. I mean, I wasn't publishing a lot of research. I wrote some papers along Mm the way with some colleagues here and there, but I wasn't trying to get tenure, you know, fighting the battle. I did what was interesting, what was fun, went to some conferences and did that kind of thing to stay active. But I was applying what I was doing every day at work, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I was living in a laboratory. I wasn't experimenting on people, by the way. I I had to do, they were real programs. But I had things I could do that would point to saying, oh, this is actually helping people.
0: Right. And uh, the learnings that you had from your work is what you bring to this course as well.
1: Of course, yeah. So I I wrote more than... 60 case studies, probably, inside NASA for internal training purposes. Okay. And I populate the course with these little NASA cases that make it quite interesting.
0: Absolutely. Um, So there was one thing that you mentioned that I found very interesting, that when you were doing your PhD, although you called it something that was formal, like in the the OB sector, but what you did was a PhD in some knowledge management. So can you explain what was your, like, what was it about that field that drew you to it?
1: So before I went to Cornell, I was uh, working at Procter & Gamble yeah. <clears throat> with their senior leaders on how do we learn and how do we build new products. Okay. So there's a lot of money in that for Procter & Gamble, as you know, a consumer yep. products company. Right. They were very interested in this and their senior people were working on it quite uh, energetically on the sort of cutting edge. So they were bringing in experts from around the world, around the country really, and in the world, to help them figure out how to build this sort of next level innovation. Okay. Stay, stay ahead, which a lot of companies were doing. Right. And so knowledge management in the sense of how do we manage the knowledge we have and we re- leverage it and re- across the organization, within the organization, and, and make the most use of it, because they had a lot of scientific labs where they developed formulas you know, right. for their for their products. Right. <clears throat> how do we leverage that in the best possible way in order to get the maximum value of it? And so those were the sort of pragmatic questions they were asking, but it became very interesting to me to observe how these scientists and people work inside a company. When they're trying to manage them.
0: Okay. Yeah,
1: that was really interesting. Because they're really smart. They know a lot of stuff. Yeah. And yet you want them to work together, but you can't actually, you know, manipulate and control them. Right. And so that became very fascinating. Okay. And that caught my attention when this professor, Novak, Joseph Novak, came from Cornell. We brought him in as an expert to share with us what he's doing. And what he was doing was making concept maps and helping people learn. Okay. From students all the way up. And and uh, he asked me, he said, uh, you seem to have caught on to this. I worked with him for a while, and I said, yeah, it's fascinating, and it works. Okay. And uh, we invented all kinds of ideas. b and included it in their product systems later in processes. Mm-hmm. They went on and used this process, some adaptations of it. And uh, so it, uh, it caught my attention to say, okay, I'll go, and maybe I'll do a PhD on this, and this was something I should become an expert in.
0: All right. That's a really interesting way of figuring out what you want to do a PhD in. So um, now that we talked a little bit about what were your challenges and opportunities like at NASA, coming to your time as a professor, especially when you first started out, hmm. what was something that was more um, unexpected than you thought it might be?
1: Um, well, faculty aren't the most uh, necessarily a welcoming group to people who come in who maybe know something else. Okay. I mean, they can be a kind of a faculty in general i'm saying anyway they're, okay. they're used to kind of they're kind of a clubby. okay and so i was hired at a school where i was a sort of a big fish so okay. you get a ivy league professor to come to a smaller school okay. and uh so i'll just give you one example so i uh <coughs> had my mba students working on uh development and uh and incubators you know this idea yep. for community development so they were working on this so i went i went to the i called the mayor of the city I said, "Would you like to come talk to my class? Because we're working on these things, and it'd be interesting to hear what you're doing."
0: Right.
1: So she said, "Sure." Yeah. So said, the mayor comes to my class. That was the first term I was there. Okay. First term teaching. Okay. So I thought this would be good. Thought the faculty would say, "That's wonderful. Look what this professor is doing for our." Right. No. Okay. Why did the mayor come to his class? I've been here five years, and she never came to my class. Ah, like, I called her up and asked her.
0: <laughs> That's
1: really all I did. It was a cold call. Yeah. I just called up and asked her, and they said, well, what do you want to do? And I explained it to her. They said, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll come. Right. So, I mean, but that's not how it got taken. So I, this was sort of a bit surprising. They were nice people. I mean, you know, I got, we got along fine. But the dynamics of politics in the university became, that was the biggest shock to me, and, uh, and other things like that. And so things happened along the way. Uh, you know, I could tell some other stories, but they're probably better not told. Not nasty things, just things that were, as you said, unexpected. unexpected things. And that's not what I expected. Uh, there's a different kind of camaraderie. Okay. And I said it's almost like a club, you know, clubiness. Mm-hmm. And I didn't fit. That's what I came to the conclusion. I'm not going to fit in this game because I'm not going to play by those rules. Right. I'm not going to color within those lines. Go. I'm interested in what I'm doing. And, I, and the bottom line was I actually really liked students. Okay. And I like working with students. Okay. Right. I taught all kinds of classes. I was very popular with the students. They don't like that either. Okay. Somebody who's popular with the students like, oh, you must be giving candy or doing something, you know. Right, don't.
0: yeah.
1: The students like to come to my class. Right. And I like having them in my class. I think it's mutual.
0: Right. It definitely. Is. All right. Um, so that that was a really interesting answer. And as you mentioned that, uh, you know, you're really interested uh, in being a professor, interacting with students, developing material. So. Um, One of the most important aspects of being a professor, especially in a profession like business schools, is to stay relevant by keeping yourself updated of what's happening. And on that note, what are some of the ways that you self-educate or keep yourself aware of what's happening at the top of your field?
1: So the longest term thing that I've done at the sort of very base level is uh, I subscribed to the Wall Street Journal when I was in school okay i still subscribe to it okay i get it every day i read the whole paper oh wow no most of it yeah (laughs) most of everything pretty much that catches my eye okay and if you do that with a paper like the wall street journal over time you actually stay at a a certain base level what's going on in the business world because everything comes sooner or later through those front pages like the financial times or something else right and so that's actually been the probably the most sustainable way because coming whether whether you have a chance to go to a conference and meet people, those things come and go, right? right? But news happens every day. Absolutely. And it forces you to think about it and to understand, okay, do I understand what this is What this is talking about or what these economists are saying about the country or this or that? And it forces you to keep thinking, and if you're not, then maybe you go read a little more or read some things online or you fill in some gaps. Right. It stimulates you. Got it. And that's a great practice, I would advise anybody who's going to stay in business. Maybe. It's easy to grow stale and cold right. and you don't know what's happening in that five ten years have gone by, you're really out of the loop. Uh, that's the fundamental thing, that's it's not it's not cheap, but it's worth it. It's a great investment. Um, the second thing I did is I, I actually wrote some papers with okay. colleagues while I was with, during the years I was at NASA, even though I wasn't a professor. I don't know. I wrote five or six, seven papers, one every year, two couple of years, and uh, and also went to several conferences. So I made myself go to some academic conferences. Mm-hmm. I made myself speak at some, present right. papers, present you know workshops or things and that forces you to kind of you know be able to present your material and defend it Then right. people are gonna ask you questions. So it's easier to just hide in your office and nobody's checking you
0: right.
1: Yeah, you know, especially in the government <laughs> <laughs> and, and really I mean, they didn't know what I was doing mm-hmm. and that's that was by design They hired me as an expert you know, professional. Right. They expected me to figure out what to do. So that's okay But I forced myself to do some conferences and speaking and papers and that kept me disciplined to actually stay involved in, in the field as it developed over the years.
0: All right. So um, before uh, your retirement, when you were working at NASA, mm-hmm. as well as still being a professor, how did you balance your time between developing course material, doing classes, your own work, the research, the entire thing? The list seems to go on.
1: Yeah, it was pretty, they were pretty busy years. I'm not sure I balanced it very well, to be honest. I mean, you, you just get overwhelmed. We had four kids. I mean, they were growing up, you know, we were. Uh, my wife and I were talking now, you know, we don't know how we did it. I actually don't have an explanation. Okay. I think it's all a big fuddle. It just happened. You kind of fuddle through. Okay. As the British say, muddle through somehow. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, thank God our kids are well-grown and well-established and you nobody know, we fell, fell off the beach or something, you know, and they all managed to do well. So uh, I'm sure they could point out things we should have done better or differently, but you, you, it was busy, 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 busy.
0: Right. Um, On that note, uh, the final question in the knowledge nugget segment that I'd like to ask you is that uh, given that you've had such a vast career, for MBA students like me who are just starting out, what would be uh, some advice that you'd like to give?
1: So uh, advice I like to give in the class, as actually I try to get students to hear, is you you need to map out where you're going, but you need to map out what you're interested in, because it may not be where you think you're going. So your interests are going to stay with you or develop as you explore them. But careers are sort of boxes. You can switch and change them around. You know, it's how you want to go here, I want to go there. People get fixated on, I want to work in the financial markets, or I want to work in consumer product goods, or I want to work in travel or something. Those are interesting. What do you want to do? What do you actually want to do? Do you want to help people buy houses or do you want to help sell stocks? You I mean? That's more important than you want to be in financial industry. And so... Find your interests and see how, because sometimes they might knit together in interesting ways, and you may not not have thought of them, because we could tend to think in these boxes, these lines, these silos that are sort of defined fields, you know, career fields. And there's uh, so much more overlap where you can find interesting ways of doing things uh, that actually will make your career much more satisfying. And so keep your interests alive, and they may not be coming today. You may be working a job in the city to pay your bills today, and we all go through that. Uh, but keep your interests alive and cultivate them, and you never know how they're going to blossom in one day. As I shared how it happened to me, I ended up in that. I didn't know that was going to happen. If I hadn't done certain things along the way, like get a PhD, that job might have come, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that when I went to get a PhD at all. But I pursued my interests, which were the subject of the PhD, and that was the topic, happened to be that. That was the means. But if I had done something else, you know, not pursued my interests at the time, because, well, I should stay here and just plod along, I wouldn't have gone anywhere.
0: All right. I think that's a really interesting answer and something very useful for all of us to take away. Uh, so coming to the, the next segment of the podcast, which is a rapid fire. If you're ready, I'll start with the questions then. So
1: you want two word answers?
0: No, I'm good with the sentences. A well. sentence. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. The first would be, what is something that you wish your younger self knew about your current profession?
1: Uh, how many opportunities there were in the world that look big?
0: Okay. Uh, Who is someone that you would consider as a mentor or an industry role model that you've met?
1: A couple of people. My boss, my last boss at NASA, worked for Chris for many years. Uh, He had a lot of good qualities. Uh, He was a, a silent, strong leader.
0: Okay. If you hadn't been in NASA or been a professor, what do you think you might have been doing?
1: Probably would have been in development work. Okay. I mean, I originally studied agriculture for right. the purpose of agriculture development work in developing countries, and I did research actually here in Hyderabad, okay. in the Icarusats research station.
0: Okay.
1: And that's what I set out to do, and then I, changed my course, I had I offered to go do that, actually. I could have easily pursued that career, and I probably would have ended up there. Okay. Right.
0: And uh, what is something that you're currently reading or watching? Do you have any books or movies that you like to recommend?
1: Well, I like to watch The Godfather.
0: Okay. We've got so
1: many lessons for us all. I do like to watch some, some Indian movies, I have to be careful, they're very long, I get, you get lost in them, so I have to be careful as I them. out. Uh, but I like to watch those, and uh, uh, books I like to read, like, now when you get older you like to read books that help you reflect.
0: Okay.
1: I mean, you're, you're not so much inventing new ideas when you're 25, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're reflecting on the ideas and how they've come about and how they've I'm Probably more reflective books
0: is What is something that you wish I had asked you today, and how would you have liked to answer it? Anything that you wanted to share with
1: What makes you happy?
0: And how, what would have been
1: Dancing. All right. <laughs> Dancing with my wife makes me happy more than anything
0: else in the world. That's a lovely answer. And with that, we come to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much, Professor, for taking the time out for this today. You're more than welcome.
1: It's a pleasure talking to
0: you. Thank you.